I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. Series 1, Chapter 15, The Nature of Art, Session 3 Topics, Judgments of Art, Talking About Art, What Makes a Work of Art Great. In this last session of Chapter 15, I continue the discussion of the nature of art based on the teaching and writing of the late Professor Mary Holmes. Judgments of Art First, let's say something about judgment itself. All of us engage in judgment all of the time. This brand of ice cream tastes better than that. Yesterday's sunset was dull, but today's is stunning. That tennis serve was too high, and so on. And when we experience any work of art, one of our pleasures is to exercise our judgment upon it. That role was well performed. That pitch was a strike. That film was technically impressive but shallow, and so on. Because this is so, you must not be fooled by people who say, Who are you to judge? Who's to say? Such statements merely put an end to the discussion by pretending that judgment itself is bad. But did you ever notice that the person making that statement is engaging in judgment too? Implicit in the statement, Who's to say? is the judgment, no one is to say, it's wrong to say. Well, on what grounds is it wrong? That, too, is a judgment. People who say who's to judge are putting an end to the discussion without ever examining their own assumption, their own judgment, that making judgments is bad. It is a way of avoiding responsibility for one's choices. The truth is that we make judgments all the time, and it is our human nature to do so. The real question is whether our judgments are good ones or not, are well-founded on knowledge and experience and insight and wisdom or not. The honest challenge is not, who are you to judge, but have I done all I can to become the best judge I can be of whatever the question is? Another thing most people don't realize when they are making judgments, including the judgment, making judgments is bad, is that the judgments we make are reflections of who we are. In making any judgment, we are revealing the extent of our capacity to judge. This is why Mary Holmes would often say that the work of art that we judge also judges us. Every judgment you make about the quality or value of a work of art is a revelation of you, just as much as of the work of art. Here's what this means. Let's say I see a great painting by Rembrandt, and my response is, that painting is boring and dull. Well, I'm telling a partial truth. To me, it is boring and dull. I'm not lying about it. But at the same time, in finding such a painting boring and dull, I am revealing my own incapacity to appreciate the greatness of that painting. Likewise, if I say that a shallow or sentimental or self-indulgent work of art is great and profound, I am revealing to all those who can see the work's flaws my own attachment to shallowness or sentimentality or self-indulgence. In other words, works of art exhibit real qualities that those who know how to appreciate them can discern, and every judgment we make about a work of art reveals our own capacity or lack of capacity to judge well. If we call a trivial work great, 
or a great classic trivial, we are showing our own judgment to be flawed. Just as if we consistently mistake a ball for a strike, or box wine for Chateau Lafitte Rothschild. This is not because the majority rules in such things. It is purely and simply because being human, sharing in human nature, we participate in reality together. And reality is characterized by certain objective universal values that govern all of us, that govern, therefore, every act of discernment of quality, or lack of it, in a work of art. This is not a popular idea at the present time, when we are so often told that preference is purely a matter of opinion and that all opinions are equal. But a few minutes' thought will convince you that you don't believe this, and certainly don't act upon it even if you think you believe it. Of course certain judgments of taste are matters of opinion. If I say, I like vanilla, you will not say, no, you're wrong, I like chocolate. But if someone says, here, try this freshly ground habanero chili pepper, its taste is so delicate and soothing, you will say, you're either lying or crazy. The effect of eating a habanero pepper is simply not a matter of opinion. One may like or not like that it makes the eyes water and the mouth and throat burn fiercely, but there is a reality to the relation between the pepper and our taste buds and the words delicate and soothing do not describe it. The most important thing to read on this subject of objective values is C.S. Lewis's short but very great book called The Abolition of Man. Likewise, there are realities described by words like beautiful, clear, honest, subtle, strong, and profound, and by words like ugly, confused, false, obvious, weak, and shallow and we can recognize the differences. The more so, the better we are trained to recognize them. To learn about a work of art, or a kind of work of art, is to make oneself a better and better judge, so that the judgments we make about it not only are more accurate, but also reveal an increasing capacity in us to judge it well. Some people are better at discerning colors than others. But we will not agree that a red car is green, just because a person who is colorblind thinks it is. Similarly, some people are better than others at judging the quality of a wine, the turnout of a ballet dancer's leg, the strategy of a football play. If we said to such people, who are you to judge, they would laugh at us, and rightly. If we want to tell a great wine from a mediocre one, a prima ballerina from a capable member of the corps, an inspired coach from an incompetent one, we must learn about the arts of wine-tasting, ballet, and football. We must train our judgments in order to become competent judges. And we do that by judging and then comparing our judgments with those of others, especially others who are better judges than we are. Now what can we say about the people who love a computer game, or a soap opera, or kindergarten finger paintings, and are bored by Othello? We will not say they are lying about their experience. We will not deny them the right to prefer the computer game or the soap opera or the kindergarten art to Shakespeare. We will not assert that those arts are meaningless, and we will not force them to watch Othello if they do not want to. But we will say that in not appreciating Othello, 
they are missing out on something valuable. They have not, or not yet, been able to see how much Othello has to offer, which, of course, says nothing about how good they are as people. It only says that this particular avenue of meaning is, we hope temporarily, closed to them. In the same way, what a person who has no capacity to judge computer games is missing out on will be known only to the good judge of computer games. The purpose of these podcasts is to help you develop the capacity to appreciate the truly and universally meaningful in Shakespeare, to give you the ability to judge for yourself the value of Shakespeare's plays. Once you've become a capable judge, the rest is between you and Shakespeare. Chances are he will not let you down. What does the work of art mean? Talking about art. There is an apocryphal story about the great composer Beethoven. After he had played a sonata in a salon performance, a woman came up to him and said, Herr Beethoven, that sonata was very beautiful and moving, but tell me, please, what does it mean? Beethoven replied, Madam, this is what it means, and he sat down and played it again. The point of the story is that the meaning of a work of music cannot be expressed in words. If Beethoven could have conveyed its meaning in words, he would have been a writer or a poet, not a composer. There is art, and there is talking about art. Talking about a work of art can help you to appreciate that work, but there is absolutely no substitute for experiencing the work of art itself. No matter how well your friend describes a movie he or she has seen, it is never the same as seeing it for yourself. A symphony has to be heard, a tennis match has to be watched or played, a painting has to be seen if it is going to have any real meaning to you. Talking about the background of a work of art before seeing it can help deepen your experience, and so can talking about the work itself after you've seen it. But there is no substitute for the seeing. However eloquent the scholar, critic, reviewer, or friend may be, nothing he or she says can substitute for your own experience of the work of art itself. As I have said in earlier podcasts, particularly that of chapter 11 on Shakespeare's sonnets, the best definition of poetry I know is this. Poetry says with words what cannot be said in words. That is, a poet forms words into a poem in order to convey the experience of meaning that cannot be conveyed in any other way. If the meaning could be expressed in some other form, the poet would not have to go to all the trouble of making the poem. The same is true of every work of art. It is only what it is and must be experienced as what it is. The meaning is in it. If its meaning could be conveyed in any other way, it would not need to exist. The purpose of talking or writing about works of art, then, is not to substitute a different experience for the experience of the work of art. It is to prepare you to experience the work of art itself more thoroughly and deeply and to enhance your appreciation of that experience afterwards through thinking about it yourself and sharing it with others. This is important 
because we have been talking a lot about Shakespeare's works. But you must never take anything you have heard me say in these podcasts as a substitute for reading the plays and poems on your own. In fact, even reading them is not enough. The poems need not only to be read, but to be read aloud and heard in the ears. The plays need not only to be read, but, whenever possible, also to be seen and heard, preferably, of course, in good productions. These podcasts exist to enhance your experience of Shakespeare's art, but they are no substitute for the experience itself. What makes a work of art great? As I said in the first session of Chapter 1, how an artist like Shakespeare becomes great is a mystery. But we can somewhat describe the difference between a great work of art and one that isn't great. At a minimum, the work of art must evoke our empathic response, establish psychic distance, carry us away, allow us to return to ourselves, and succeed in making the connection implied by, wow, look. Otherwise, we call the thing a bore. But when we think about what the experience of the work of art has meant to us, when we judge it, what have we got? Are we better or worse off? Are we grateful or complaining? Have we been delighted, uplifted, illuminated, deepened, chastened, moved? Or have we been made tired, confused, depleted, frustrated, resentful? Do we return having experienced something true, even if through fantasy, or something false, even if through realism? Something healing or something harming? Something we remember with love, reverence, delight, respect, or awe? or something we remember with disapproval, disgust, or unsatisfied hunger. In short, what meaning have we found in our experience of the work of art? What makes a work of art great is its ability to return us to ourselves, having had a rich, illuminating, bettering, deepening, and meaningful experience, one which impels us to say to someone we care about, Wow! Look! I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare.